You're listening to the Opportunity Zones and Private Equity Show. Listen in for news and insights on how Opportunity Zones, private equity funds, and private real estate can help you grow your wealth. Now, here's your host, Jimmy Atkinson. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm Jimmy Atkinson. Opportunity Zones are still a relatively new tax policy. A lot of investors, fund managers, and even advisors are still getting up to speed. Even though the the policy's uh, four or five years old now, it's still relatively new. And there are many traps for the unwary, as termed by my guests joining me today from Plant Moran. Uh, Gordon Goldie is a tax partner in Plant Moran's Tax Solutions Group. And Valerie Grundusky is tax partner in Plant Moran's Real Estate Group. Uh, Gordon and Valerie, thanks for returning to the show today. It's great to have you back. Thanks for having us. Thanks. So uh, today we're going to dive into about a couple dozen or so of these traps for the unwary things that investors, qualified opportunity funds, and qualified opportunities on business should be aware of. Uh, Now, just a fair warning to everybody watching or listening to this podcast today, uh, we're going to identify a lot of the problems. Uh, We don't have time, unfortunately, to lay out all of the solutions to all of these problems. So if you have any questions, you can uh, reach out to Valerie or Gordon at Plant Moran uh, if you want to discuss solutions to these different types of traps. Uh, This is mostly meant to be a a teaser, I suppose, and and just kind of identify some of the problems that you should be aware of. Uh, So we're going to break today's episode up into three different uh, categories, essentially. Uh, We're going to cover traps for qualified opportunity fund investors. We'll cover traps for the qualified opportunity funds or QOFs themselves. And then we'll also cover traps for QOZBs, the businesses that the funds invest into. So let's start at the top first. Let's let's cover the traps for qualified opportunity fund investors. What are some of the traps that investors in QOFs should be aware of? Yeah, so since the incentive obviously is largely for the investor themselves, I think that's probably the best place for us to start. Um, and the first topic that we have here is one that that is surprising, given your point that the, that the program's been around for four or five years now. Um, and that's in in truly understanding what the benefits are for the investor. Um, you know, early on, we had the the deferral of the original gain, there was a potential step up in basis at five or seven years, and then a step up in basis after a 10 year hold and potentially being able to eliminate any gain um, and appreciation on your investment. Somewhere along the way, it seems like that um, the the deferral of the gain until 2026 has gotten lost a little bit in the weeds. Uh, Gordon and I are often surprised that we've had people reach out who still believe that that original gain gets extended (laughs) or goes away entirely. And so we just wanted to level set, make sure everyone understands we love, you know, we love helping people use this program. We would love for more people to, you know, invest in the program. Um, But obviously it helps to understand what the actual benefit is. So that was just the first one we wanted to kind of put out there as uh, that that's not how it works. It would be great if it did. Unfortunately, that gain that you're deferring does become due and payable with your 2026 tax return, um, but we still think there are other great benefits beyond that. So that was the first. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point uh, to to bring up that that gain is uh, the tax on that gain is due uh, typically in April of 2027, I guess it would be um, unless Congress is to extend 
the program, which was, there's been some discussion of, but they haven't yet. So as of now, plan on paying a tax bill in April of, of 2027. What, what, what other traps for the unwary, Valerie? Sure. Yeah, I'll hop on the next one. But I was first going to joke to me that I don't know that any of us are holding our breath that too much is going to happen in Congress this year. Yeah, um, very true. Very true. Totally. Um, but the, another one has to do with the treatment at, you know, a state or local tax level. So not every state, not every jurisdiction has decided to do what the federal government does. And so as an investor, you do need to pay attention to both where you are domiciled and where you pay taxes and where the investment you made is and where that pays taxes and, and make sure that you understand whether or not the benefit is one that is solely going to be a federal benefit for you or if you will also get to see the benefit at a state and local level as well. Because unfortunately, it's not a one size fits all across the country on that. And yeah, there are a handful of states uh, that do not conform, unfortunately. I think the, the vast majority of states either don't have a capital gains tax or they have elected to conform or maybe said more technically, they have not elected to not conform because some of them automatically conform with these different tax uh, rules by the by the federal government. But in any case, yeah, just be wary of, of where you may have tax nexus if uh, you're in a state that doesn't conform to the opportunity zone policy and, and California and New York, I think are the two 800 pound gorillas in the room that, that don't conform. And there's a handful of others as well. Uh, Gordon, let's bring you in. You, you've been quiet. What about what, what other traps for the unwary investor in qualified opportunity funds? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things we see is that, uh, you know, there's, there's a catch to deferring your gain in in the statute and the regulations and, and that catch is that you don't get any basis for your investment into the qof and so when an when investor makes the election to defer their gain uh you know let, let's say they have a hundred thousand dollars of gain and they invest it into a qof no, normally when you invest a hundred thousand dollars into a partnership you get a hundred thousand dollars of basis for your investment in that partnership but the the catch under the opportunity zone program is that you don't get any basis for that hundred thousand dollar investment um, and, and or whatever amount you make the election to defer until you basically pay the tax uh, you know to the extent that you um, made your investment you know before the end of 2021 and you qualified for you know the the 10 or 15 percent basis step up you you get basis at the point in time when that basis step up occurs um, but but for the most part you, you've got no basis for you know either either five years or 2026 whatever comes first. And, um, and, and so, you know, that, that's important to consider for a couple of reasons. One is that to the extent that there's losses allocated to you out of the, you know, investments, the, then you, you can't claim those losses unless you have basis. Um, and, and also to the extent that there's distributions made to you, then uh, as a general rule, when you receive a distribution from a partnership, it's not taxable unless it exceeds your basis. And so, you know, for those two reasons, you need to be aware of this limitation that, you know, you don't have basis until you pay your tax, you know, or, um, you know, or you get the basis step up um, because you could end up having losses allocated to you that get deferred um, and or you could end up having um, distributions that become taxable. And so, you know, the, the, the loss thing, just to just to kind of clarify one point is, you know, that, 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 that you could uh you, you could be deferring gains at, uh, you know, a 20% capital gains, long-term capital gains rate, and the losses might be potentially 37% losses. And so, you know, to the extent that you're deferring gains at 20%, but don't get basis and then, you know, have losses suspended that could have been used against 
bracket income. I mean, that, that, that's a pretty negative um, arbitrage there on, on the rate spread. And so, um, you know, what, what, what uh, you know, we, we, we generally inform the, um, you know, investors and opportunity funds about is that there, there are ways to get basis to avoid that situation from happening. Um, it, it's generally centered around how the debt of the, the, the QOZB or the QOF is structured and how it gets allocated. And so as an investor, you want to, you know, even though that's, those are really technical issues that most investors probably would have a hard time um, comprehending on their own, but that, that's, that's why it's important to have advisors, you know, to, to consult with um, is, is to understand, you know, how they, uh, the, the QOZB and the QOF, uh, you know, what, what type of debt they're going to have and how it's going to get allocated. Because to the extent that there's debt basis allocated to the investors, then they would have basis to receive losses and distributions without negative tax consequences. And so it's important to, you know, to, to think about that up, up front and to, and to plan for it potentially. And, and uh, you know, it, it could make a big difference in your, you know, rate of return and, and the effect on your, your taxes uh, that if you don't consider this, uh, this trap here. Oh, that's the, that, that, that's a good one there, Gordon, for sure. And that is very technical and a little, went a little bit above my head, but uh, <laughs> that's, that's why we bring in uh, the experts, uh, like you guys from time to time. So I think that wraps up, uh, unless I'm wrong, the, the traps for QOF investors to be cognizant of that 2026 gain recognition and that initial deferral of capital gains eventually coming home to roost uh, on your 2026 tax return, making sure that state and local uh, non-conformity issues, uh, check whether or not you have nexus in localities or states that may not conform to the federal incentive and then the deferral of tax basis, uh, which have some problems with suspended losses or possibly uh, taxable distributions before your basis kicks in. Let's uh, move on, uh, unless I'm missing anything there. I think we're ready to move on to the traps for the funds, the qualified opportunity funds. And, and yep. Valerie, why don't you uh, kick us off by talking about uh, the, the IRS tax form that funds are required to file every year? Right. So, so in order for that investor to get to defer that gain and have that, you know, a, a eventual step up in basis and elimination of gain on the back end, they have to have invested in a qualified opportunity fund. Um, and in an order to be deemed qualified opportunity fund, you have to file form 8996. There's another box that has to be checked on the return as well, but essentially stating the date in which you first want to be you know, I guess, elect to be a fund. Um, and so that is, it, it's important if you don't make that election, right? Now that investor, when they on their form or on their 1040 or whatever form they file, um, complete the 8997 to show that they have an investment in a fund, the IRS will, you know, try to match those up. And if the fund has never filed the 8996, that, that clearly is going to be a problem for the investor. Um, and where we've seen this, pop up a few times is especially like, let's say somebody sets up a fund right at the end of the year, and there's not really any activity. Um, and so they're like, well, we don't really have, we don't really need to file a return because we don't have any activity. So there's not a requirement from that perspective to file a return. But if you, you don't file the return, you've essentially not elected to be a fund. Um, so that, I mean, it, it seems pretty basic, but it's just very important to make sure that that, that step is followed. Um, and, and another um, other problem we run into also is if the 
the QF return tax return for the year you want to make the election doesn't get extended um, properly. They, like maybe there's some miscommunication between the accounting firm and the uh, you know and 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 the fund organizer. Um, and and if you know they they nobody extends that return, then the election has to be made. The form eighty nine ninety six has to be made on a timely filed return. And so if that if that initial return is not filed timely because the extension was not um, you know submitted and, and approved. Um, and th- th- we've also seen some situations where extensions get uh, rejected for some reason. And so that, you know, the accountants need to pay attention to that too, is that, uh, you know, we- we've seen extensions get rejected and then you've got generally five days to fix that. You know, if, if there is a rejection, um, you know, we've seen, you know, various different issues there with, you know, maybe a potentially an incorrect EIN or, or something like that. And so, you know, the, 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 the point is that, you know, make sure if, if you've got a fund that you want to certify and you're not filing by the March 15th deadline, unextended deadline, that you make sure that the extension gets properly um, filed and approved. Sure. And, and then in addition to that, you know, when we're looking at the fund making that election on that form, they, they get to choose what month they want that election to be effective, right? And they might default to January because it's the beginning of the year. Um, but obviously that kind of starts the clock on them needing to meet the various tests that, you know, there might be varying reasons to want to start that later in the year. Um, but it's very important to make sure that the date you're self-certifying and electing to be a QOF is before you received your first capital gain deferral dollars. Because again, if those timelines don't match up, you've now caused issues for your fund investor who, who was, you know, planning to be able to defer that gain and have a qualified investment. I don't know, Gordon, if you had anything else on, on that piece as well. Not necessarily really on the, on the date there. I think that's, you know, obviously important, but uh, maybe going back to the, just the filing of the form in the first place is that uh, th- th- there is a way to fix the form not being filed. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, it's expensive. And so they, 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 there's probably been several dozen private letter rulings that have been issued by the IRS that have approved late filings or non-filings of forms and uh, form 8996s. And so um, that, that is unfortunately the, the only solution really that, that works. And, and it's, it, it, it comes along with not only a cost of having to prepare the submission, but also a filing fee that, that needs to get submitted to the IRS, which could, could, can be close to $13,000 and, you know, depending on the gross receipts of the, um, of the entity submitting the form. And so, uh, and unfortunately, that's that's the cost of missing that election and, and or not making it or not extending the return timely. So make sure you file your taxes on time for your QOF. <laughs> file right. on time and correctly, you, you hopefully, see, right? <laughs> yeah. Do you see a lot of funds uh, elect for a non-January effective date or do the vast majority use January? I mean, I've seen it all over the place. And some of that, again, depends on just the timeline of when, you know, they're uh, been planning to deploy the capital Gordon, I don't know if you've seen anything different. Yeah, I think, you know, th- th- there's a, there's a trade-off. Like if you use January, basically you've, you've, there's this, uh, you know, we weren't planning to cover this, but there's this, uh, uh safe harbor, basically that the, the fund has, um, the, the first testing dates, uh, is, is a free pass. You don't have to invest the money. The fund doesn't have to invest the money, um, on its first testing date. And so, it uh, the the date you pick to make the election could affect uh, you know how long you have the free pass available for, and so 
it uh, you know that, that that's that's part of the reason why you don't you don't necessarily want to just pick January every time. Um, that that if you know if, if the investors didn't put their money in until July, you're, you're better off putting in July than putting in January. Because if you put in January, you're you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna lose your free pass earlier than you need need to. Right. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. So uh, then you get that free pass uh, from July through December, I suppose. Right. It's a six month right. fasting period. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so the most important part, I guess, is that you make the date just the earliest deferred gain dollars you receive to make sure that you're matching that timeline. That's, it doesn't necessarily have to be before, but it most certainly shouldn't be after. No, that's a good rule of thumb. Uh, Valerie, what's our next topic? I, Gordon just yeah. mentioned working capital safe harbor. I think you had uh, a, a trap there as well that you wanted to cover next. Sure. Uh, so we're going to, you know, obviously in a little bit, jump into talking about qualified opportunity zone businesses and on other podcasts that you've, you've had, people have discussed the two different ways to invest um, and that you can either just have where the qualified opportunity fund itself is holding the property or the business that is in a zone, or it can be invested in a qualified opportunity zone business that is in a zone. And I'm sure you've had, like I said, conversations talking about all of the, uh, I guess, kind of pros and cons between using one versus the other, but we just wanted to highlight here that for those who've decided I don't need that additional structure, um, I don't want to have to file another return or have another tier. Um, by by having the assets held just within the qualified opportunity fund itself, you lose that benefit of that working capital safe harbor. So that working capital safe harbor, in addition to that six month free pass that Gordon was just talking about that the fund receives on the front end, a working capital safe harbor allows the qualified opportunity zone business you know, time to make improvements or to build new, you know, they kind of have a longer runway to actually get the work done. Um, but unfortunately, if you're trying to do everything right at the fund level, instead of having that second tier, you do have to be careful that, you know, you are now subject to this testing every six months and you don't have that flexibility of the working capital safe harbor plan. You need to be deploying that cash and um, meeting the tests along the way. Right. We, we've even had, you know, conversations with people who have two tier structures that for some reason think there's a working capital safe harbor available at both the fund level and the business level. And, and you know, that that obviously, if, if it was true, would give the fund 31 months to spend the money. But unfortunately, it's not true. And the fund only has six to 12 months to spend the money. And so that that that's, uh, you know, why it's on the list of traps for the unwary is just because there does seem to continue to be misconceptions about the, whether or not there's a working capital safe harbor available for for opportunity funds. Yeah, sure. And and <clears throat> there is at the QOZB level, if you like to do that two-tier structure, uh, which buys you a lot more flexibility. Uh, Gordon, you had two more traps for the unwary with regards to qualified opportunity funds. Why don't you dive into those for us, please? Yeah, well, well, one of them I, I, I don't hear really anybody ever talking about, and, and may, maybe it's just a technical nuance that you know, geeky people like me appreciate, but um, th th there's a requirement uh, in, in order for an opportunity funds uh, investment into the lower tier entity to be considered qualified opportunities on property. There's a requirement that that uh, investment be made uh, directly into the qualified business solely in exchange for cash. And, um, and, and so we, we've seen some situations, albeit not real common, but where, you know, people have either wanted to or, or actually had done something that would have violated that requirement. And, and so, for example, if uh, if the opportunity fund were to contribute property to the 
qualified business uh, like land or, or a building or something that would violate that requirement because it's, it, you know, they would have acquired their interest in the qualified business um, in, you know, not solely in exchange for cash, right? Because if, if you're contributing cash and property, then it's not solely in exchange for cash. And so you, you would not be considered qualified opportunities on property. E- even if the business satisfies all of the requirements of a qualified business, it, 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 it would not be considered a qualified investment if the investment was not made solely in exchange for cash directly to the to the qualified business. And so um, another situation we've seen is where um, where there's an interest in an entity contributed somehow or that, you know, or, or somehow somebody contributes an interest in, in the qualified business to the opportunity fund. So there there are other kind of nuances of, of you know, situations where this could come up. Again, it's, it's, it's not real common, but um, I, I, I don't think very many people really have this on their radar screen. So just something to keep in mind that, you know, that the, any investment into a lower tier entity in order to be qualified asset of the opportunity fund has to be acquired directly from that lower tier entity solely in exchange for cash. So that, that that's one. Any any thoughts on that, Valerie? No, I think I think no? you covered that well. Yeah. Okay, and that the 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 last one this this does come up quite often is um, there, there's questions about how to value an investment into a lower tier entity that is not a qualified business, and so you know there, there there's often a lot of discussion amongst people you know because there, there's this ninety percent test at the KOF level that you know. You know, some people look at it as as, as a you know ten percent freebie that they can invest ten percent of the QOF's assets into anything they want, um, and it doesn't have to be qualified you know uh, opportunity zone property. And so, um, you know, the, so the so, so this is kind of where this question comes in is to the extent that a, an opportunity fund invests into a lower tier entity that's not uh, a qualified business, and you know they, they 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 might do that intentionally, kind of as a carve out to try to take advantage of that ten percent. Um, it, you know, how do you value that investment? And so, you know, again, I apologize if I get a little technical here, but, uh, um, there, th- there's really, um, you know, a couple different methods you can use to value, um, your, your assets for purposes of the 90% test. Um, one of which is the applicable financial statement method where you basically value it at whatever is on your financial statements, but you can only use that method if you have an audited financial statement. And so, it, it, that that's that's not used very often, and so the more common valuation method is the alternative valuation method, which basically says that you value your investments, uh, or it, it, you know, depending basically on how you acquired the asset. And so there's there's two approaches. One is is if you acquired the asset by uh, purchase or construction, then you, you use your unadjusted cost basis. So basically, whatever you paid for it. So if you if you purchase something, it, you value it at what you bought it for. And, and, and generally speaking, that amount stays the same forever. Um, and, and or if you constructed it, you know, whatever you paid to construct it is what is what your unadjusted cost basis is. And that amount would stay the same forever. You don't, you know, you don't depreciate it or anything. It's just basically whatever your unadjusted cost basis is. Um, you know, the, and, and the same thing with a, um, with a with an interest in a lower tier entity, if you, if you purchase it, you would, you would, uh, um, you would use whatever you paid for it uh, to, you know, to, as your unadjusted cost basis. But the the question comes in is, well, when you make a capital contribution to a lower tier entity, is that considered a purchase? Um, and, and, and if it's not, then then what what do you need to value the asset at? And and the the, the regs um, are, are pretty clear about saying that uh, if the capital contribution you make is to a qualified business, so you know it, it's a QOZB that it's considered a purchase. 
And so therefore you use on a just cost basis. Um, but by the way, if it's, if it's not considered a purchase, you have to value it at fair market value. And so that, that's, that's sort of like the, 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 the default. If, if, if you didn't acquire something by purchasing it or constructing it, you have to use fair market value. So um, th there's somewhat of an unanswered question. I, I think you know, the, the, the safest uh, you know, interpretation would be that if, if you make a, a capital contribution to a lower-tier entity that's not a QOZV, that you have to use fair market value to value it um, because it, it's, it's not clear that that's a purchase. You know, the, the regs make it clear that a capital contribution to a QOZB is a purchase, but they, it, it sort of insinuates that a capital contribution to a non-QOZB is, is not a purchase, and, and therefore the, you, you default to have to value it at fair market value. And so, so I, I'll give you an example where that could be a problem. So let's say you had a, an opportunity fund raised a million dollars and they invest 900 grand into a QOZB by making a capital contribution, and that 900 grand is their unadjusted cost basis, and that stays the same forever. And then they put hundred grand into a lower tier entity that's not a QOZB, um, but by making a capital contribution in, in that scenario, then they would have to um, value that uh, at least under the most conservative interpretation based on its fair market value. And so, you know, on, on day one, you would pass your 90% test, but if that hundred thousand dollar investment in your lower tier entity, that's not a QOZB goes up in value, you would, you would then fail your 90% test and be subject to penalties. And so, um, you know, they, they, there are potential solutions to this, which, as you mentioned on the top of the show, we don't really have time to get into. But, you know, happy to talk to anybody that is in this situation, uh, you know, regarding some of those potential solutions. Yeah, that's very interesting. How, how often do you see that where a fund will intentionally invest up to 10% of its assets uh, into non-QOZB entities kind of to take advantage of that 10% rule? It, it comes up quite often. I, I, it's certainly not more than half, but, you know, I, I'd say maybe, you know, a couple of times out of 10, you know, we, we have you know, maybe one or two times out of 10, we might have a fun, you know, want to talk about that. Yeah, that, that That's more than I would have suspected. That's really interesting. <laughs> um, well, well with, with that, oh, let, I was going to say, I think what's important ahead. about everything that, you know, Gordon was just pointing out there is that I think, especially for smaller funds, it's easy for them to, you know, kind of get, get it set up. They, no, okay, I've got to keep my cash underneath this 10% threshold. And, you know, they, they feel good about that 90% test, you know, once they kind of get up and running and maybe don't think about it a lot after that. Um, but based on what Gordon was just talking about and some other things, it is important that you are paying attention to that twice a year, every year, you know, once you've started the fund until the fund winds down, um, because obviously there are all of these little things that can happen along the way that could change whether or not you're subject to penalties, whether or not something qualifies. So sorry, that was all I wanted to add to that. <laughs> no, this stuff, this stuff is tricky. So again, make sure you have a, <laughs> a, a proper tax advisor to, to help you assist with all this. Well, let's move on to our, our third category, uh, which is traps for QOZB is the entity that typically sits underneath a qualified opportunity fund. Uh, Gordon, you wanted to talk about triple net leases here. I know there's uh, been a lot of interest from folks who are used to doing triple net leases and figuring out a way to do triple net inside of a qualified opportunity fund. Is that a, a go or no go situation there? Yeah, it, it's, you know, I, th I think if you can, if you manage it properly, it can be done. Um, you know, it's, it really just depends on the definition of triple net lease. So I, I guess as a starting point, it's, it's as you kind of alluded to, um, there, there is a prohibition against qualified businesses uh, having 
um, triple net leases. Uh, however, it's it's uh, you know there, there's 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 some de minimis rules that come into play, and so I think there's an example in the regs where if you've got a a, a building that's three stories and one story is leased on a triple net basis, but the other two stories are not, that that's fine, and so. You know, so that's 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 one you know consideration is the de minimis rules is that you know you can have triple net leases that are de minimis in in the big scheme of things to your to your business, but if if you've got a you know let's say a one tenant building, you know that that's a situation where you, you know the de minimis rule is not going to come to play, and you have to make sure that that lease with that one tenant is is not going to be a triple net lease, and and or at least the majority of your leases are not triple net leases, and so. Then, then it gets into the definition of well, what is a triple net lease? So, you know, I, I, what's important to point out here is that th- that that it's it's really more based upon who's responsible to pay for the costs, things like maintenance and repairs and things like that. Um, I'm sorry, who who's responsible to um, it, to hire somebody to to um, you know to, to to do those things? And so, uh, it, it, as opposed to who's responsible to pay for it, so. Um, so, so you can have a triple net lease economically um, in an opportunity zone business, uh, me- meaning that it, it, it's fine if the tenant, um, you know, reimburses the the landlord for um, the the common area maintenance and, and other things like that. Um, but but the landlord um, has to be the one engaging the, the you know the company to do the repairs and the maintenance, uh, you know, and or other significant uh, services. The the landlord can't pass all of that stuff onto the tenant. Because uh, if, if all the landlord is doing is just clipping coupons with rent every month and the tenant is out there engaging somebody to do the repairs and the maintenance and all that stuff, then that's what's considered a true t- triple net lease where it would be, uh, you know, that that could invalidate your your QOZB. Um, but but if if the landlord is is hiring those people and getting reimbursed from the tenant, that's okay. So um, so, so a is, lot of people- Is the issue would, essentially, Gordon, that it, has to walk and talk a little bit like an active trader business, essentially. Yeah, exactly. The 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 qualified business has to be doing more than just collecting a rent check every month. And they and so to the extent that they're responsible to go out and engage somebody to do repairs and engage somebody to do maintenance, then that's more like an active business and therefore it would be eligible. But if they're contractually like delegating those responsibilities to the tenant, then it would be considered more like and you know, clipping a coupon investment, like almost investing in bonds, you know, or something like that, and and that those are clearly ineligible. And so it's it's really trying to distinguish, you know, how actively they're involved in managing, you know, the, the business. Right, right. Uh, well, what else do you have for us, Gordon? Traps for yeah. So uh, another one that is is somewhat surprising, but it's it's just the way things are, unfortunately. Um, I say surprising because it's it's I would argue inconsistent with the intent of Congress in putting this statute together. Um, is that if if you've got a, a a qualified business that owns property that's considered ineligible for some reason, either maybe for example they owned it before the Opportunity Zone legislation came into play, because you know in order to be Opportunity Zone property, it has to be acquired from an unrelated party after December 31, 2017, and so you know if you've got a business that owned property before that date, then it's considered ineligible property. And, and as I mentioned, it has to be acquired from an unrelated party. And so another situation we see is where uh, a business acquired property from a related party after December 31, 2017, or maybe where it uh, it also has to be acquired by purchase too. And so it may, maybe it could be that the property got contributed by a partner. So th- those are probably the three most common situations we see, either 
they owned it at, at December 31 already, they acquired it from related party or it got contributed as, as a capital contribution. Um, but the, the IRS is very clear that uh, any improvements that you make to ineligible, an ineligible building are also considered ineligible. Um, and they, they state that in the, in the preamble to the regulations. And so um, the, 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 there's, there's probably a distinction here because I think most people would, uh, would, would view that as, as being interpreted differently in a situation where the ineligible property is just vacant land. So if you know, somebody owned vacant land on December 31, 2017, uh, I think most people would view that if you build a building on that vacant land, that's, it, that's eligible um, because it's distinguishable. It's, it's a building versus, versus land. But, but if you owned a building on December 31, 2017, or you're acquired from a later party or whatever, and you make improvements to that building, the IRS says that, that, is, that any improvements that you make to that building are ineligible. And so, you know, we, we see a lot of that with, say, historic buildings that are, um, you know, that, that are, you know, ineligible for some reason that, uh, you know, people would want to rehab them and, uh, you know, and place them back into service. But that, unfortunately, any improvements that you make to that um, building are, are considered ineligible. And that, that's important because, you know, you, you could, um, you could potentially still pass the 70% test if you could count the improvements as eligible, you know, the, the, I mean, the, the math's a little harder than the typical, you know, you've got to double your basis. I think it turns out to be more like 2.4 times, um, you know, in order to pass the 70% test, but let's say you had a, a million dollar asset that you spent 2.4 times um, improving, um, you would pass the 70% test if you were allowed to count those improvements as eligible property, but the IRS says, no, no, those are not eligible property. Um, and therefore, you, you're, you're not going to be a qualified business. And uh, like I said, I, you know, that's, it seems contrary to the intent of Congress to encourage taxpayers to make investments in the opportunity zones. And, and you know, the, the reason the IRS gave for why they take that position is they said it's too hard to track, hmm. which I think is a bit of a joke. But uh, um, yeah. Yeah, maybe at some point they might reconsider their, their opinion on this, but you know, we, we try to steer people away from taking that issue on head on. Uh, yeah, you, is, you don't want to, want to be, that is, that is yeah. too bad that, uh, that, that, that type of improvement wouldn't qualify. Valerie, you were going to chime in. I think I was just going to say, especially when the program first came out and we were, you know, trying to explain this to groups, I, there were a lot of people who were upset because they were excited to find out that they had property that was in an opportunity zone census tract. Right. And, they were like, oh, I've got this great project I could do with this property. And so they were upset to find out that the way it is written, they kind of felt like they were being left out. Now, getting to the comment you made at the top of the program, we have some ideas on ways that, you know, you could still make opportunity zones work for that property, but it, it's not as beneficial and it's not as all in um, as it would be if the IRS hadn't taken that position. Right, right. Well, now... uh Valerie, a few minutes ago, covered working capital safe harbor uh, at the QOF level and applying it to a QOZB. Um, uh, Gordon, you had some more thoughts on on working capital safe harbor. Yeah, really, the the the, the trap is really more from a documentation standpoint. That uh, you know, I, I think uh, uh, too many people think that you're just by right allowed to have a working capital safe harbor where you have 31 months to spend the money, but. You're, you're, th there's three requirements that you have to meet in order to be entitled to that 31-month period. And if you don't meet those requirements, then you aren't eligible for the 31-month period. And so that that's the trap, is to be aware of the fact that there are requirements in order to be qualified for the, the safe harbor. And, and they're generally related to documentation. So you, 
you have to have a written plan that shows, you know, wh- how you're expecting to spend that money and and when you're expecting to spend the money. So you have to also have to have a written schedule that shows when you're expecting to set, spend the money. Um, and, then, and then you basically have to comply with the, um, you know, with with the the schedule. And so, you know, there there are some rules related to amending plans, although that's a little unclear. You know, that's that's another potential trap is when and and if you're allowed to amend a working capital safe private plan. But the you know the, the the first kind of point related to you know traps on the on the working capital safe harbor is just to be aware that there's a requirement that you have um you know documentation that that shows that they're you know at, contemporaneous with when you started the 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 plan so basically when you receive the money you, you should have a written plan in place and a written schedule showing you know how and when you're expecting to spend that money um and so so that's that's the first prong and the, and the the other is that there, um, there, there was there, there's been several updates. I'll, I guess I'll call it to the regulations since they were finalized. Um, and uh, w- w- one of the updates introduced the concept of startup businesses with respect to the working capital safe harbor plan. So that that was not uh, a requirement, or that was that was not a, a concept that was built into the original final regulations. It was one that the IRS came up with as as a, I think it was a correction to the um to, to to the regulations and so there there is a distinction between startup businesses in terms of how the working capital safe harbor works and so that, that's another trap that we see people getting caught up in um, par- partly because they you know they remember the rules that were adopted uh when the initial rule regulations were finalized that maybe might not be aware of the fact that the irs has changed the rules since then to introduce the startup business concept but um i i think the 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 one, one of the biggest distinctions there is that the working capital safe harbor um, um, period, so, sometimes you can have a uh, uh, stack two, di- two different working capital safe harbor periods on top of each other. So if you, uh, if, if you, if, if you, you know, have a second infusion of cash, you can have, uh, you know, overlapping or, you know, sequential 31 month periods. Um, but, but that's only available for startup businesses. And so if you're not a startup business, you don't have the ability to stack the working capital periods on top of each other or overlap them. And so, you know, that that's that's a potential trap that people might think they have the ability to stack them, but they don't if they're not a startup business. And then there, there's also a presumption that uh, during the working capital safe harbor period that that you satisfy the 70% test. And, and it's also... Um, uh, that that's that's another distinction here for startup businesses. So that's only true for startup businesses. So uh, if if you're not a startup business, then you don't have the presumption that you um, automatically pass the seventy percent test during the uh, working capital safe harbor period. So you actually have to pass the seventy percent test during the startup period. So th- those are important traps for people to be aware of too if they have businesses that are not startup businesses. Yeah, and of course. Uh... That begs the question: What is a startup business? How is that defined? Right, yes. We we exactly. don't need we don't need to get into that right now. We also didn't even touch upon the fact that uh, the IRS uh, changed uh, the working capital safe harbor periods uh, during the COVID pandemic because they were declared disaster emergencies uh, across the country, and I, I think those those may have changed once or twice. But um, suffice yeah. to say, I don't. We don't need to cover that right now. But there's <laughs> there's a lot more nuance to working capital safe harbor plans. That you should be aware of, but let, let, anyway, let's move on to our next topic because uh, I don't want to draw this out for for too much longer. Yeah. Um, but uh, Valerie, I'm going to turn to you uh, yeah. here with this next one. So, opportunity zones obviously are a place based tax policy, and the different geographies uh, that that are eligible to uh, receive this type of investment are census tracts that have been designated 
as qualified opportunity zones. But those census tracts are bounded to the 2010 census map. Just a couple of years ago, we got a new map uh, reflective of the 2020 census, and some of the boundaries changed a little bit. Some of the census tracts actually changed on the map. What are the implications of that, Valerie? Right. So, so it's really, you know, just making sure that you're paying attention to the right year's census tracts when you're looking, especially for somebody who's purchasing property, you know, now. Um, if, if you're doing it based on the 2020 census tract, you might not be in an eligible property. So this one was kind of a quick hitter. Just make sure that you're looking at the right years of census tract data, which most of the tracking tools that are out there, you can specify um, which year of census you want to search by. Um, so just making sure that where your property is, is actually in an eligible opportunity zone census tract, because obviously it would be disappointing to find out later that it wasn't. So just wanted to make sure people are being uh, cognizant of making sure they're looking at the right year for that. Yeah, and just, just to be clear on that. So you, if if the census tract expanded, for example, or emerged, maybe you, you could be in a census tract that is on the list of eligible census tracts, but actually not be eligible for opportunities on benefits because you, 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 your property is in a portion of the census tract that wasn't in the census tract in 2010. And therefore, you're not eligible for any benefits. You're only eligible if you're in the portion that was, you know, actually in the census tract in 2010, if that makes any sense. Right. Yep. That, that does make sense. And I would encourage uh, my listeners and, and uh, viewers, a, a quick plug here. We have a mapping tool at OpportunityDB. You can find it at OpportunityDB.com slash map. And our map is locked into the 2010 census so you'll you'll know uh, if you plug in an address or you want to zoom in and around on the map you can see for sure whether or not uh the area is shaded blue which means it's a it's an opportunity zone on our mapping tool or or not so uh with that uh valerie i think we've got one more trap for qozbs and it deals with irs form 8996 again which i know qofs are supposed to file but right. you see qozbs file them and is there a problem with qozbs filing them well, yes, there is. So you know, this one, I will, I will admit, obviously doesn't happen a lot, hopefully. And and we've seen it on a couple of clients that we've inherited, right? So, you know, somebody had already set up their QOZB, set up their QOF, and, and then we kind of see them down the road. And just based on maybe just misinterpretation of what they were supposed to do, they filed the form 8996 for both the Qualified Opportunity Fund and the Qualified Opportunity Zone business. Um and the regulations make it clear that a fund cannot invest in another fund. So essentially, right, this QOZB has now made an election to be treated as a fund, which kind of blows the whole thing up. Um, this one, unfortunately, I don't think it's as clear. Now, the the late filing for a QOF, obviously, Gordon referenced that, you know, you could do a private letter ruling, which while it's expensive, is at least a solution. Um, unless I'm wrong, Gordon, I don't think we have an easy solution. We have some thoughts on what may or may not work, but I don't think we've seen exactly. it yet that's a solution for what happens if you accidentally certify a QOZB as a fund. Right. Yeah. It, it's not really clear. I, I, part of the problem is that there's, uh, you know, there's no guidance from the IRS on this. And, and you know, as best we can tell, is this, this has happened a fair amount because the IRS uh, issued an announcement a couple of months ago saying, QOZB should not file form 8996. So like, 
I don't think they would have done that if they hadn't been seeing a, a fair number of those forms being filed. But at, at this point, they haven't really provided any guidance as to how to fix that situation. So, you know, like Valerie said, we've got some thoughts that we suggest people kind of follow in that situation. But there's not 100% certainty that, you know, our recommended strategy is actually going to work. But hopefully at some point, we'll get some guidance from there on that. Yeah, hopefully sooner rather than later. And uh, just just one note for me, uh, I did cover that topic extensively uh, with Kirk Walton on a uh, on a podcast episode that I recorded with Kirk last year. I'll be sure to link to that episode in the show notes for today's episode. If anybody wants to dive into that topic further, we went over a lot of the the numbers and that, that is a little bit old now because uh, we were using numbers from uh, 2020 and 2021, I believe. Um, not the not the update, not anything new from 2022, but uh, still kind of a good uh, overview of, of that particular topic of QZBs wrongly filing the, the form that's intended for QOFs and then making it look like QOFs had investments into other QOFs. Uh, but well, that, that kind of covers our, our top three topics, traps for the unwary for the investors, for qualified opportunity funds, and for qualified opportunity zone businesses. We've got a handful of other traps, just kind of a grab bag of other traps that uh, Opportunity Zone stakeholders should be aware of. Gordon, do you want to uh, walk through these last remaining topics? Yeah, yeah. So again, it's it's a bit kind of jumping around here because they are just miscellaneous um, potpourri type uh, traps to be aware of. Uh, one we see quite often is that uh, cash doesn't flow consistent with the way the structure is intended. So you know, people like to take shortcuts. And so, you know, for example, instead of putting the money into the QOF and then the QOF putting it into the QOZB, can I just put it right into the QOZB and then just record it as if it went into the QOF and then the QOZB? So that sort of thing. And so, you know, or, or you know, what, what, even even more like, can, can I just, you know, transfer money directly to the seller of the property, um, you know, from my personal account and not have it go through the QOF and the QOZB? You know, we, we see that sort of situation, both, you know, people asking us before they do that or don't do that and, and or sometimes they just they just do it, <laughs> you know. And so, uh, you know, I, I would recommend people, uh, you know, try to as much as possible um, have cash flow consistent with the way the structure is intended um, that that will absolutely mitigate any risk that you have that, you, you know, the RS might blow up, you know, all of your you know, benefits. I, it's not you, worth it. You want to create that paper trail, right? Yes. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, a couple extra seconds of moving cash around is easier than having to deal with the whole thing being deemed not to have worked on the back end. So, yep. And there, unfortunately, uh, my understanding is it does take some time to get bank accounts set up sometimes. And so you You're do have to plan ahead. Seconds as working, Gordon. Right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, with the whole know your customer rules and stuff, it's like you've got to plan ahead and make sure yeah. each of the entities have a bank account. And so that's may, maybe one of the things to, you know, to avoid putting yourself in the situation, because sometimes you get to closing and it's like, well, I can't move the money the way I want to because I have to close and I don't have a bank account. And so, you know, think about that ahead of time. So that's, you know, maybe an, another a sub bullet on this one. Um, we, we, we also have, uh, um, you know, people on occasion, um, you know, forget basically that there's limitations of the number of tiers of entities you can have in these structures. I mean, ba basically the most you can have is the taxpayer that had the gain, an opportunity fund and a qualified business. I mean, if, if you've got more tiers than that, it's, you've probably got a problem somewhere. And so, 
Um, and unless it's a disregarded entity, you can you can have more tiers than that if there's disregarded entities involved. But basically, you know, if if you've got more tiers than that, and and there's no disregarded entities, then you've got a problem, and it's probably something you need to, you know, you know, ha, you know, consult with somebody on on how to fix or how to how to avoid that that issue. So that that that's kind of a quick hitter, like Valerie mentioned the other one. Um, we we also see that you know, and th- th- this is a way more broader topic than than I'm going to get into, but related party um, transactions are also a problem. There, there's there's generally only two um, places where the related party rules come into play. What One is when you generate the gain that you're investing in the opportunity fund. It can't be from a sale to a related party. The, the, the other is when the um, opportunity fund or the qualified business is acquiring an asset. They, you know, if, if the asset's acquired from a related party, then it's not a qualified asset. And so that's generally speaking, um, you know, wh- where this first kind of trap comes in is uh, is when you're acquiring assets from, um, you know, a potentially related party. And and w- what's not obvious is that that could include things like, uh, and people think about buying a building from a related party, but it, it can also include services. So, uh, for example, if, if you um, have a related party construction co- company that you engage to to build your building or to make improvements to your building, um, that, that that's arguably a related party transaction, and the cost associated with that would would arguably be ineligible. And so, um, there, again, there's there's kind of solutions and workarounds to that, but uh, just being aware of the fact that when you're engaging a related party to perform services that end up getting capitalized as part of a tangible property, that that is arguably uh, an ineligible asset, and being conscious of the fact that you've only got 30% of your, you know, uh, of your tangible assets can be ineligible. And so you, you, you need to make sure that whatever you do, you keep that, those related party services and, and such below the 30% threshold. So, you know, that, that, that's something we, we see fairly frequently, um, you know, particularly in what I'd call uh, captive, you know, opportunity funds where, you know, somebody, a developer has their own capital gains and they're investing in their own project and that sort of thing. So, um, so that's something to to be conscious of, um, and then the, the other one is is maybe a little bit more broader, but uh, I, I don't hear a lot of discussion about this. Is that you know, as most people know, the the threshold for being relatedness is twenty percent. So to the extent there's common ownership, that's twenty you know, more than twenty percent, then that's considered a related party. But what what's not really clear is how do you determine um, whether somebody is more than a twenty percent partner when you've got a partnership that has a complicated waterfall. So, and, and most of these deals have partnerships with complicated waterfalls. And so I, I don't hear much, any discussion about that. And so you, you can't just look at bottom line profit sharing and say, well, the bottom line profit sharing is 20% or less. Therefore, we're not a related party, you know, when you've got complicated waterfalls. And so um, I, 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 I don't know that there's a definitive answer to this, unfortunately, but it's something to be aware of is that. You know, don't just kind of, you know, on the surface, look at, uh, you know, prof, you know, some bottom line profit sharing ratios and, and, and make a conclusion as to whether somebody's related or not. You really need to dig into more of the details on, on you know, who, re- who really is going to be getting, you know, profits and how much are they going to be getting? And, and does that potentially create exposure that somebody's related when you might not have otherwise thought that they are or vice versa? Um, so, you know, that, that that's uh, a, a trap is people just not really appreciating that it's not quite as simple determining who's a 20% partner or not than, than you might think. It's hard to know if, if, uh, if you're dealing with a related party or not, in some cases, that's, that's interesting. I think you got a, just a couple more, uh, traps, yeah, yeah, traps just, for us. 
Right. Just really one more. And I think most people know about this or a lot of people do, but uh, there's a provision that uh, I guess in the, in the regulations, they call it a, a disguised sale. Um, and, and so obviously you want to avoid that. It sounds bad. Right. Um, but uh, so, so the regulations basically say if there's a debt finance distribution that occurs within two years of making your contribution or capital contribution to a QOF, where you basically get money back from the QOF, um, within two years, and and the money that that you got back came from a debt financing, um, that that's basically treated as if you never made the investment in the first place. And so, you know, just being conscious of that, that you 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 want to avoid having any sort of distribution going out to a uh, a QOF investor that was uh, debt financed within two years of when the money came in. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's easy enough to make sure that you wait you know, more than two years, because, you know, 25 months is fine, but 23 months is a problem. And so, you know, just being aware of that requirement and, and a restriction so that you can avoid that trap is important. Uh, well, th- Valerie and Gordon, this has been great. Uh, you know, on, on its surface, investing in opportunity zones uh, is, is pretty simple. It's a pretty simple concept, you know, defer capital gains, by rolling them over into a qualified opportunity fund that invests its capital into qualified opportunity zone businesses, which puts its dollars to work in economically downtrodden communities. But, you know, when you dive in and look at the subtle nuances here and there, there are quite a few traps uh, for for all of the different levels of that structure, the investor, the fund, and the, the, the that, that bottom tier QOZB as well. Really appreciate uh, both of you sharing your insights on opportunity zones today and, and traps for the unwary. Before we go, where can our audience of high net worth investors and advisors go to learn more about you and the services that you offer at Plant Moran? Sure. Uh, so www.plantmoran.com backslash opportunity zones is where you can find all of the opportunity zone content that we pushed out. And then uh, Jimmy, I'm sure you'll be sharing our uh, email addresses as well if anyone would like to contact us directly. I, I will indeed. Uh, I'll be able to share those on our show notes page available at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. I'll, I'll have all the links to all of the resources that Valerie and Gordon and I discussed on today's show. And also, please be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast listening platform to always get the latest episodes. Uh, Gordon and Valerie, again, thank you so much for joining me today. Really enlightening. Thank you. Thanks. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.